With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, then uh, you have been given, because of the good news of the gospel, great power. And what you do with that power will decide how you finish as a Christ follower. It comes with great responsibility. Because here's the thing. We all want to finish well, Right? I mean, nobody wants to get to the end of their race and think that, man, I, I could have done more. We want to finish our race. But what if finishing our race is never even what our race should have been about? What if it's much bigger than that? I heard a youth pastor say one time that if you were to liken the Christian life to a race, that you've got to recognize that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not something that you just blitz right through and boom, you're there. Uh, the Christian life is also not a marathon. It's not this just long, gruesome toil that's painful. You kind of catch a tempo at the very end of your life and then you coast into the finish line. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a marathon. The Christian life is a relay race. It's a relay race. And what I want to suggest today is the greatest testimony to whether you finish well as a follower of Jesus is how you position and set up the faith of the next generation. Or another way that you could put it is the greatest responsibility of the, coming, of the current generation is the coming generation. Because when I think about it, I think one of the biggest fears that we should have as Christians is that we can genuinely fall into believing that our Christian lives begin and end with us. That we work on our own spiritual development, we work on our kids to work on their own spiritual development. We come to church, we give, we're in a community group, we kind of do the whole thing, and then boom, it's over. And not once did we ever really think about or invest in the faith of the next generation. We live and function as though our Christian lives begin and end with us. And I think God's vision for his church is much, much bigger than that. And this vision for the need to invest into the next generation doesn't just uh, find itself throughout the pages of Scripture, but it reflects itself in the aches of culture. Because every generation is filled with seekers. Every generation is filled with young people who are longing for approval, longing for acceptance, longing for blessing, and that's first and foremost in the context of a home from parents. But it doesn't stop there. It, it shouldn't stop there. Young people long for acceptance from anybody who's willing to listen, anybody who's willing to believe in them. This was the case for young Miles Morales in the movie Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Miles is a young kid from uh, Brooklyn who's recently gone through a transition of schools where he's now attending the local prep school in Brooklyn, and uh, he decides to go hang out with his uncle one night. 
And amid this hangout, he gets bitten by a radioactive spider and some pretty crazy things begin to take place. And a couple of days later, he goes back to the place where he was bitten to kind of check things out and see what happened. And he finds himself in an unlikely situation given an unlikely task. Check this out. You know your shoes are tied. Uh-huh. This is a, a onesie, so I don't really have to worry about it. I thought I was the only one. You're like me. I don't want to be. I don't think you have a choice, kiddo. Got a lot going through your head, I'm sure. Yeah. You're gonna be fine. I can help you. If you, if you stick around, I can show you the ropes. I just need to destroy this big machine real quick before the space-time continuum collapses. Don't move. While stumbling upon Spider-Man trying to defeat the villain named Kingpin and destroy his machine, Miles meets kind of a fork in the road in his life where he has to decide how he's going to respond to his new normal. He's in this vulnerable position where uh, he needs guidance, he needs direction, he needs belief in, in how this whole Spider-Man thing is going to go. And thankfully, Peter Parker, the current Spider-Man, is there to give it to him. He says, hey, stick around, I'll show you the ropes, we'll kind of team together to do this. And all looks like it's going to go according to plan, or so we thought. Uh, something surprising takes place that night. Watch this. You okay? I'm fine, I'm fine. Just resting. Can't you get up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always get up. <clears throat> the coffee's probably not a good sign. Fine. Now. Listen, we gotta team up here. We don't have that much time. This override key is the only way to stop the collider. Swing up there, use this key, push the button and blow it up. You need to hide your face. You don't tell anyone who you are. No one can know. He's got everyone in his pocket. What? If he turns the machine on again, everything you know will disappear. Your family, everyone, everyone. Promise me you'll do this. I promise. Go. Destroy the collider. I'll come and find you. Spider-Man, but it's not. Hey, Kingpin, how's business? Booming. <laughs> nice. Ah, oh, that's a no-no. <laughs> this might open a black hole under Brooklyn. It can't be worth the risk. It's not always about the money, Spider-Man. <sighs> Don't you want to know what I saw in there? Wait. I know what you're trying to do. 
And it won't work. They're gone. Get rid of the body. What was that? We interrupt this broadcast for a special report. Sad news tonight. The hero known as Spider-Man has died after injuries related to another powerful earthquake in Brooklyn. Multiple sources are confirming that Peter Parker, a 26-year-old grad student, I'm not scared operated of the dark. I'm not running, running, running. No, I'm not afraid of the fall. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. Miles thought that Peter Parker, the Spider-Man, was going to be the one to show him the ropes. They were going to team together and defeat the villain Kingpin, destroy the machine, and all was going to be well. And here we are, the hero of the story has died. And as you can imagine, Miles is probably thinking, what in the world is going on? Miles isn't the only one who's found himself in this sort of scenario. Uh, the people of Israel, God's people, are very familiar with losing a beloved leader, Moses. See, for the Jewish community and the Israelite people, Moses represented fundamentally everything. He represented their instruction from God because it came from Moses. He represented uh, their connection with God because it came through Moses. He represented their salvation by God out of the land of Egypt because Moses was the one who led them. I mean, this guy was no mere Joe Schmo figure. He was legit. And at the brink of the land of promise, the destination that they were heading to for 40 years, Moses dies. Yes. I know, that's exactly what happened to the Israelite people. They're thinking, what in the world are we going to do? How is this going to go over? This is a huge deal. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy would describe it this way. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses' powerful leadership is now gone, and the people wept because of it. But something that's significant about this story is that the story isn't over. We've got to rewind a few years back to notice a very important moment in the life of Moses. Because as Moses got older and he recognized that he was not going to be the one to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, he knew somebody else needed to step up. And so uh, he, he prays to God and asks, God, who, who do you want to step up? And here's what happens in Numbers 27. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership and lay your hand on him. And the book of Deuteronomy gives some fresh commentary on the actual fulfillment of Numbers 27 when it says this, now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, something to note about this passage is that the spirit of wisdom was on Joshua because Moses laid his hands on him. 
The process of laying one's hands on somebody in this context was much more than just like putting a sweaty palm on somebody's forehead and saying, bless you. (laughs) No, it, it was a visual representation of the transfer of power. Much like our presidential inauguration in today's day and age where the former president and the newly elect president walk down the steps together and the former president steps into Air Force One one last time to kind of signify that transition, the laying on of hands left no doubt in the minds of the Israelites who their leader was going to be. And in the Numbers 27 account, God notes that Moses was to delegate some of his authority to Joshua and some of his responsibility so that the people of Israel would begin to see him as a leader. And so what we've got to see throughout this process is that this process started long before the week of Moses' death. In fact, the process of Moses' investment into Joshua started long before that. Numbers 11 speaks of Joshua as having been an assistant or an aide to Moses since he was younger. And so this was a very intentional transition. Moses uh, sought after the Lord for who was going to be the upcome, who was going to take his place. He was intentional about investing into Joshua throughout his youth. He was intentional about all of these steps and replacing himself and, and giving away authority to, to Joshua so that people would begin to see him as the leader. This, this did not just happen. And the effect of this transition and this intentionality was a lot of success. Joshua assumed the responsibility. He led the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the land of promise very successful military campaign. campaign. I mean, he uh, conquered 31 kings, six nations. I mean, this guy had a great tenure. The transition could not have gone smoother. But if we fast forward just a generation later to the end of Joshua's career, we notice a subtle change. Something's different about this transition. See, while Joshua had led many successful conquests, he didn't complete the job. Joshua 13 records this. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. And so Joshua, recognizing that his time is thin, that he's not gonna be the one to uh, ultimately conquest the land as was planned, he makes sure that the people of Israel know that when they settle in their respected land boundaries, they are to finish off the military job, or else it was gonna get really, really bad. And Joshua, as having been incredibly faithful in his leadership to the Lord, uh, gives one final passionate charge and plea to the Israelite people when he says this, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a passionate plea from somebody who was filled with both authenticity and conviction. But authenticity and conviction alone will not set up a generation for success. Here's how I know. If we just flip a couple of pages in our Bibles to notice the very next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, to see how the first verse begins, it says this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And I want you to keep that wording structure in your mind as we compare it with the prior generation's transition in Joshua 1, which says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses is eight. What's different about those two verses? After the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel said to the Lord. 
What's missing there? What's missing there is a clear transition of faithful, God-centered leadership from one generation to the next. And that tiny, itty-bitty, subtle change that if we're just reading our Bibles, we probably will miss it, will lead to one of the most catastrophic periods in all of Israelite history, the period of the Judges. And if you read the book of Judges, what you will notice is a consistent theme of a lack of leadership leading to the people of Israel doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, doing what was right in their own eyes, and not knowing God. Joshua had a phenomenal leadership career. He, he was a person filled with both authenticity and conviction. But what we have to recognize is authenticity and conviction without investment and belief is a great race, but it's incomplete. Moses modeled authenticity and conviction while also investing in and believing in Joshua as the future leader. And Joshua did not follow suit in this same way, and the effects of it are detrimental. Now, let me just note that there's probably many reasons why there wasn't a successor after Joshua, including the fact that God's ruling, sovereign hand is written all throughout this story, and he was in control. However, what we at least have to realize is that we do not see in the text Joshua investing into someone like we saw it recorded about between Moses investing into him. And so for one reason or another, it is safe to assume that Joshua did not invest into somebody to, to replace himself, and that set up a bad Transition. We've got to see that bad handoffs can ruin good races. This was the case for Joshua and the Israelites, and it could have been the case for Miles Morales. Spider-Man is now dead, and there's no clear leader of who to follow. It's kind of like, man, Miles is in this crazy moment in his life, and in this, in this crazy moment comes another Spider-Man from another world. It sounds kind of crazy, but here's what happened. See, through Kingpin, the villain's machine, five alternate worlds get mixed up into Miles' world. And one of the characters that's thrown into Miles' world is this guy named Peter B. Parker. He's an alternate, uh, recently divorced, kind of out of shape Spider-Man that's lost his purpose in what it means to be Spider-Man. And so Miles connects with this guy and says, okay, he's gonna be the one to invest in me. Here we go, finally. And through much hesitation and apathy, Peter says, okay, I will invest in you. And the entire movie is all about Miles coming into his own as Spider-Man. And, and this is a, a long and grueling and difficult process that ultimately finds itself of, you're not really sure of whether Miles can do the job. The job of not only helping Peter B. Parker get back to his own world and uh, defeating Kingpin and destroying the machine, but the job of being New York's new Spider-Man. And in a crucial scene toward the very end of the movie, we see the authenticity and the investment of Peter B. Parker throughout the movie collide with the conviction and the belief of Miles' dad to renew a sense of confidence within Miles that creates something special. Watch this. Miles, I came to say goodbye. We can say goodbye at the Collider. You're not getting it. You're staying here. I need to be there, so you can all go home. They are going home, Miles. I'm the only one staying. You're taking my place? If you stay here, you'll die. I'm doing what needs to be done. I just wanted you to hear it from me. What about MJ? Not everything works out, kid. I need the goober. Please don't make me take it from you. That's not fair. You gotta tell them I can do this. It wasn't their decision. I gotta make Kingpin pay. You have to let me make him pay. Miles, you're gonna get yourself killed. But I'm ready. I promise. Ah! 
then venom strike me right now. Or turn invisible on command so you can get past me. Look, I know how much you want this kid. Poor little guy. But you don't have it yet. I'm sorry. When will I know I'm ready? You won't. It's a leap of faith. That's all it is, Miles. A leap of faith. your dad. Please open the door. Miles, I can see your shadow moving around. Yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. He's still ignoring me. Look, can we talk for a minute? Something... Something happened. Look, sometimes people drift apart, Miles. Then I don't want that to happen to us, okay? Look, I know I don't always do what you need me to do or say what you need me to say, but I'm... I see this, this spark in you. It's, it's amazing. It's why I push you, but... It's yours. Whatever you choose to do with it, you'll be great. Look, call me when you can, okay? I love you. You don't have to say it back, no. See, what Miles needed in this moment was not only the challenge to recognize that being Spider-Man was a leap of faith, but he also needed someone to see the spark within him and actually believe that he could do something incredible. And I believe today's generation of teenagers are not too far off. Generation Z, or those born between 1995 and 2010, make up 26% of all U.S. population. And by next year, 2020, it said that they will make up 40% of all U.S. consumers. A Barna Research Group is saying that Generation Z is the test case for the long-term effects on identity. Teenagers between the ages of 13 and 18 are twice as likely as adults to call themselves atheists. 
In a world of moral relativism, Generation Z is hungry for truth. And only 8% of Generation Z would say, would say that a religious leader of any kind is some sort of role model for them, which is a problem. And, and as you're hearing this, if you're at the point in your life where you're thinking, man, you know, I, I've, I've followed Jesus, my kids follow Jesus, we're going to come to church, we're going to give, we're going to be in a community group, we're going to do the thing, but I'm just not cool enough to invest into the next generation. I would beg you to reconsider. Uh, because when you invest in and believe that the next generation is full of potential for greatness for God, amazing things can happen. That was the case for Miles Morales. Uh, Peter B. Parker had spent time investing into Miles throughout the movie, and Miles has now taken on the Spider-Man responsibility, and it's time for Peter to go back home to his own world so that Miles can defeat Kingpin and destroy the, uh, the machine and, and win the day. And, um, and we see this clear transition as Miles reciprocates the lessons that he learned from Peter B. Parker along the way back to Peter. And Peter finally believes that Miles is ready. Watch this. What are you doing? Peter, you gotta go home. This guy could kill you. I can't let Spider-Man die. Neither can I. It's okay. Yeah, it is okay. You gotta go home, man. How do I know I'm not gonna mess it up again? And you won't. Right. I hate to leave the thing. It's a leap of faith, says Miles. What once came out of the mouth of the mentor is repeated back from the mentee, and I believe the same can happen today. It's not about simply modeling an authentic uh, life with Jesus, what that looks like. It's not about simply living convictionally, standing for God and his word through your life. Those are good, and you should pursue those, but if left alone, like Joshua, they will not set up a generation for success. It's incomplete. We can't stop there. We must move forward to invest deeply, not afraid to get into the trenches of the next generation's lives, get our hands dirty and showing them how to live like Jesus. And not stopping there, but believing wholeheartedly that God wants to and will use the coming generation to do great and mighty things for him. The key in a healthy handoff in a race is for both of the runners to match each other's tempo and speed for just a moment so that at just the right moment, a beautiful handoff is able to be made so that that next runner can finish the race. The question that I have for the older generation in our community is simply this. How are you running to hand off? How are you running to hand off? And in order to run to hand off well, what I wanna suggest that you do is you think bigger than your family. Don't, don't get me wrong, the, the primary role of inspiring the faith of the next generation rests on the shoulders of parents but also recognize that there are kids all throughout our city that do not have parents, or they don't have active parents, or spiritually Christ-following active parents. As Moses would plead to God, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And what I'm pleading to you, at the very least, is that you would care, that you would fight for Generation Z in prayer. And maybe for you, God is stirring something else, some more active involvement, 
And you might be thinking, man, what does active involvement in the lives of Generation Z look like here at Northridge Church? I'll give you one. It's every Wednesday night from 630 to 830. It's our student ministry. I am super biased, but let me tell you, I don't know what role you can play, but you can do something. Even if it's hopping into our once a month prayer meeting that we have parents covering our students in prayer once a month. I don't know what it is, but you can do something. How are you running to hand off? Think bigger than your family. And to the younger generation, the question that I have for you is, are you ready to receive? Are you ready to receive? We've got some grown folks in here cooking at you right now with a baton full of faith, and you are standing absolutely still like a deer in headlights. And you think that just because mama brought you to church, you are all good. Well, what's going to happen is the older generation is going to blow right past you, and you're going to miss out on your opportunity to do something incredible for God. So here's my challenge. Match the tempo. Match the tempo. Because remember, the key in a good handoff is to start running now while the runner behind you is catching up so that at just the right moment, you guys can have the same speed, the same tempo so that you can take that baton and finish the race. And you might be a teenager in here and, and thinking, man, what's an opportunity for, for a teenager like me to try to match the tempo of the current generation to receive that baton full of faith? I'll give you one. It's every Wednesday night from 630 to 830. It's our student ministry. Again, I already admitted it. No shame, shameless plug. I am biased. But our volunteers are a part of the faithful runners that would love to show you how to match their tempo to hand off that baton. Come this Wednesday. Northridge Church, in our culture today, we have a bunch of sheep without shepherd. And what I'm asking is, will you be a part of the solution? Let's not seek a Joshua transition. Let's seek a Moses transition. So yes, keep modeling your authentic walk with Jesus. Keep standing convictionally for his word and his standard, but do not stop there. Find ways where you can invest deeply and believe wholeheartedly in the faith of the next generation. And if you think the authenticity, conviction, belief, um, and I don't remember the third one, the fourth one I'm missing, authenticity, conviction, belief, and investment from Moses to Joshua is crazy, look at Jesus. Jesus has risen from the grave, inaugurating what will be the most widespread and insane news to ever hit the world ever. And before he ascends to his rightful place in heaven, he looks at his friends who have followed him closely for the past three years, and he says, hey, uneducated fishermen, and look down upon tax collectors that have followed me for the past three years. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to give you access to the greatest news in the entire world, and I'm going to allow you to share that saving news with the entire world. And you're gonna do greater things than I did on this earth, but guess what? I'm gonna be with you the entire time. And that birthed the movement that we call the early church, which are the shoulders that we stand on right now. That promise that Jesus made to his followers was true then, it's true now. And if you're older in here and you're thinking, man, this is so intimidating. Like, I'm not cool enough. I, I, I don't know what to do. This is a huge calling. What do I have to offer? You have nothing to offer, and that's perfect. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, I think our young people need to hear that, but just as much as our young people need to hear that, our old people need to hear this. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're old. As we look at that scripture, it says nothing about setting an example because of your age. You don't have to be cool. 
You just have to care. Joshua needed a Moses. The Israelites needed a leader. Miles needed his dad and Peter B. Parker. And there's a teenage guy out there living without hope right now who needs a spiritual dad or a spiritual brother to tell him that he's going to be an epic godly dad one day. And there's a teenage girl searching for her identity in all of the wrong places. And she needs a a, a spiritual mom or a spiritual sister to tell her that the God of the universe thinks that she is precious. The greatest contribution that you may have to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but it might be somebody you influence. And I love how Pastor Andy Stanley poses this uh, sharp question that I believe we need to hear today, and it's this. How much is the faith of the next generation worth to you? Because I'm going to side with Andy Stanley, and I'm pretty sure he's siding with Jesus and saying that it is worth everything. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for the call and the mandate to um, pass faith on to the next generation. Uh, Help reveal to us what part we play in that. Even if it's just, man, going after Generation Z in prayer. But help us to see past us, past our families, which are good. We need to see that. But help us see the long-term goal of your kingdom coming and you using different generations to influence other generations. Thank you for your grace in our lives and giving us this opportunity to learn from your amazing word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.